Morning. How are we today? Everybody good? All right. Well, um, we have been, uh, we've been very blessed to have a lot of new faces uh, joining us recently. So uh, because I am not Rick, the one that you guys see the 90% of the time up here, he asked that I share a little bit about myself uh, before we get into the, uh, the message this morning. So if we go really long today, like past 12, blame it on him. All right. So, all right, exactly. But I will, uh, I promise I'll make this as quick as I can. Um, my name is Brent Honeycutt. Uh, my beautiful bride, Krista, is uh, sitting right up here on uh, the second row. Um, you guys know her, see her already, and you probably love her already because she stands up here and she sings and uh, leads you guys in worship almost every Sunday. Um, God put us together at Mount Olive College now the University of Mount Olive. It's no longer Mount Olive College. That's how long ago we were there. But um, I tell everybody I'm convinced that God placed me at Mount Olive College to meet her. Yes, I got a degree out of it and all that good stuff, but I was there for, for she and I uh, to, uh, to meet. So we've been together for almost 22 years now. We are going to, uh, we're going to celebrate 18 years of marriage in uh, June, on June the 10th. And next to Jesus, she is by far the best thing that's ever happened to me. But coming in a close third place is the two, uh, the two beautiful girls that God has blessed us with as well. So we've got our oldest, Carly. She's sitting right here beside Krista. She is uh, 13 years old. We've got our youngest, Kelsey, who is uh, six years old. She is um, back with the little anthemers in Sunday school. This morning, we're very proud of both of them and uh, the young ladies that they are most of the time. <laughs> no, we are, we're, very, we're very proud of them. My mom, uh, Brenda Honeycutt, is here with us today, too, and uh, you'll find out where she goes to church in just a minute. But um, my dad went home to be with Jesus last year, actually a week from tomorrow. I can't believe it's been a year already since he, since he passed. But um, I'm very blessed to have the best parents in the world. Uh, they were great examples to me and my sister, uh, Michelle. They are just great examples of godly wisdom, godly influence, uh, loving Jesus. They, they displayed that for us. And uh, I'm who I am today because of, of them and, uh, and who they are. Now, I realize this too, that you can't tell this by the way I talk, but I'm actually from here. All right, not... Not Anger, per se. I'm from Fuquay, but I was born and raised in Fuquay, Verena. I did graduate from Fuquay High School way, way back in uh, 1995, if some of y'all can think that far back. But uh, I spent a lot of time in Anger because we spent a lot of time at church. And our church was Piney Grove Chapel Baptist Church. A little redundant, I get that. Chapel Baptist Church, not sure why that got put that way, but that's where we, uh, that's where we went, and that's where my mom still is a, uh, a member. But um, that's where my walk with Christ began, uh, back when I was nine years old. And that's where I cut my Christian teeth, so to speak. Um, Piney Grove was the only church that I knew for at least 30 years of my life. Um, I served there in a number of different capacities from the time I was about 13 years old. That's when I started doing stuff. I started serving on the 
uh, sound AV team, whatever you want to call it at that time, uh, running sound and doing stuff like that, and, and just did all that until uh, 2008. And leaving Piney Grove was one of the hardest things that I ever had to do. I mean, that was, that was tough. That was home. That was where I was supposed to be. But uh, we felt the Lord leading us. We didn't know where it was. It almost felt like Abraham, you know, where he's, God tells Abraham, just go, and I'll show you where and what later. I had no idea where it was, what we were supposed to do or anything. I just knew we had to, we had to go. And it actually finally took my dad saying, son, you've got to go. <laughs> you've got to go do something. But, um, but anyway, we left there. It was a very, very difficult uh, decision to make to, uh, to leave Piney Grove. And when we did that, we ended up at a church called Explore Church in, uh, in Fuquay, actually. And after being there for maybe a year or so, give or take, I can't remember exactly how long it was, um, the church hired a second pastor. And I believe the official title that he was given was the most apostolic pastor of biblical teaching in small groups. I'm kidding. That was not it. <laughs> it was like pastor of biblical teaching in small groups or something like that. But, uh, but anyway, I can't remember exactly what it was. But, uh, but this guy came in, and, uh, and there was an instant connection between he and I. There was just a, I don't know how to explain it other than it was a, just a relationship that God wanted to have in place. Um, I don't know any other way to, uh, to say that other than just God intended it to happen. And uh, that pastor is our pastor. It's, um, it is Rick. And uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, it wasn't long, maybe a, a year, a couple years or so after he was there that he began talking to me about planting a church. Like, what would it look like if we planted a church? What would, what would we do? Where would we do it? And uh, all these different kind of things. So we talk, started talking about that, and then through God moving and doing as only he can do, um, that stuff that I just don't have time to get into right now, of course, here we are. I mean, we're over four years into what is now Anthem Church. Uh, and I guess we're probably a good five to six years into it or so, uh, give or take. But um, we're just one of the families, me, Krista, and our girls. We're just one of the, the families that have been here from the beginning, from, really from the very beginning. And uh, we're just here doing what we can, serving as best we can. I mean, there's, that's it. There's nothing special about us. There's nothing uh, awesome or anything. Just get to know me a little while and you'll realize, yeah, there's not a whole lot of good there. But, um, and I don't want to over-glorify, you know, what God has done. I want to give him the credit for it, but it's not one of those things that's always been easy either. You know, I don't want to make it sound like, oh, it's just been this wonderful cloud-top experience all the time. It's not. It's, it's been hard. There have been some really hard times, and we were warned about it. We said, man, if y'all do this, it's going to get hard, and that has proven true. I don't think we believe that as much as we probably should have when we first uh, got into all this, but um, it, has been, it has been difficult at times. It has been really good, not easy. I'll say it that way. That's probably the better way. It's been awesome, but it's not always been easy. That's, uh, that's, that's probably the best way for me to, uh, to say that, but um, the Lord has been with us through all of it. I can say that. We've not done any of this by ourselves. I mean, we really haven't. There's no way, there's no way that we've gotten to the place we are now without the hand of God working in dramatic and amazing 
in amazing ways. So all we can do is just try to remain faithful, keep pushing, stay the course, do the things that we know we're supposed to do, and just keep going. Just keep moving forward, keep moving forward. Um, and we're just really glad to be a part of what is Anthem Church. And, uh, and we're thankful for all of you guys here, too, because y'all are it, too. Y'all are, y'all are Anthem, you know, so we're very glad for, uh, for all of you, even those I haven't had the privilege of meeting yet. All right, so that's a little bit about me. That's enough there. This is not the, the Brent show or anything, but um, how we got here and everything to be a part of Anthem Church. And now that you do know a little bit about me, I'm hopeful that it has earned a little bit of credit where I can ask a question. Because I've got I've to ask a question here. And uh, so for those of you who kind of checked out a minute ago when I started talking about me, you can come back. But here's the question. How do you feel about mercy? How do you feel about mercy? Now, I would imagine that we all like mercy. I would imagine that's something that we all do like to have. Um, I would even go so far as to say that we want it. I would think we would want mercy. And given the right situation, given the right set of circumstances, we probably even crave it and long for it. Like, God, please give me mercy. Show me mercy. Or somebody, show me mercy. And I think we even know that at times we definitely, definitely need it. But what if I told you that my question wasn't whether you liked receiving mercy, but how do you feel about showing mercy? Well, that changes things, don't it? Receiving it is one thing. Having to show mercy or extend mercy is something completely different. We all want to receive it, but it comes much harder when we have to show it, especially if the violation or the offense is bad enough. I would even say that we probably put levels on the amount of mercy that we're willing to show, depending on the circumstances, depending on the, uh, the situation. And we might even say that showing mercy would be absurd in certain situations. Like, it would just be crazy. I can't display mercy. I can't show mercy in, uh, in this situation or that situation. Because justice, that's what needs to be served. Justice needs to be served in this situation, not, not mercy. But mercy is a vital, vital part of the Christian faith. It is a crucial, foundational part of the Christian faith, and it is absurd. Just the whole idea of mercy is absurd. It's absurd how much mercy we have been shown by a holy and good and righteous and perfect good God. I mean, it is, it is absurd how much we have been, how much mercy we have been shown because he has the 100% capability, right, and everything to dole out as much justice and judgment as he wants, as he chooses. Because he is 100% perfect and right and good in every way, and we are far from it. Far, far from it. But it is a crucial part of the Christian faith nonetheless. And thank goodness he doesn't do that. Thank goodness he doesn't dole out judgment and justice like he could. Not yet anyway. The day is coming. Now, we might get some discipline here and there, and that's a good thing. But you can even discipline and show mercy at the same time. But there's certainly not the judgment that we rightfully deserve. Jesus himself said this to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 13. He said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, 
and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So the Pharisees were complaining that Jesus was hanging out with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners, as they would say it. So they're, they're complaining about this. They don't like the fact that, that he's hanging out with them because these people are in direct violation of God's law. They are in direct opposition to God, and they should be receiving judgment in the opinion of the Pharisees. They're like, this shouldn't be happening. But this is who we are. That's who we would be if we were there in that situation. That, that's exactly who we are. And that's who the Pharisees were too. They just didn't realize it. They thought themselves higher than they ought to have. So they needed the mercy that Jesus was showing just as much as those tax collectors and sinners did. Everybody that Jesus was around in that time were sinners in need of mercy. They needed this absurd mercy that he desires to show and that he wants his people to show as well. So not only does God show this absurd mercy to us, he wants us to show it and display it to others also. And we would even say that absurd mercy, absurd mercy is the only right and good kind of mercy, right? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at some absurd mercy this morning. We're going to look at a passage of scripture, uh, a small section from a much larger story in, uh, in the Old Testament. So my hope is that as we learn what this absurd mercy looks like, and as we glean some few, a few things from this passage of scripture, that we will then be able to show absurd mercy to others ourselves. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab that and get it out and go to uh, the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a blue and white one somewhere around you. And we'll also have the, uh, the verses on the screen as well. All right, so we're going to start with 1 Samuel chapter 24, and we're going to look at verses 1. We'll start with verse 1, and we'll just we'll read down a little bit here. So it says, When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. So we'll stop right there. So we need to back up a little bit and get some context for what's, for what's going on here. Um, so we're, I'm going to give you a really like Reader's Digest Cliff Notes combination version of some, some backstory here. So back in 1 Samuel chapter 17, there's a story that we read about David and Goliath. Okay? All this starts with that story. And I don't think, I think where most of us are familiar with that story, so I don't think it'll be a spoiler if I tell you David killed Goliath. Right? <laughs> David got him. He's gone. No more Goliath is around. So after that happens, after that happens, Saul, who is the king of Israel, and he's one of the ones that doesn't go out to fight Goliath either, he puts David in charge of like his whole army, more or less. It's like he puts him over his men of war, the Bible says. So he's like this young man, David, who killed Goliath. Now he's like the, in charge of the army, more or less. So he's put David in that position, and David is successful like crazy. Everywhere he goes, everything he does, it's just God's blessing is on him. 
I mean, it's just like one hand over the other. It's amazing. And everybody loves him. Literally, everybody loves him. He's going in and out in Israel, he says, and the people love David. All right, so that's happening. And while they are coming back home after David has killed Goliath, and I believe at this point he's also gone out and won some other battles too, they're going through the cities and these women are coming out. They're coming out of the, their houses and stuff, and they're, they're playing these instruments, and they're singing, and they're praising, uh, they're praising God, and they're praising Saul and David. And we look at 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 7, and it says, And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Now, that don't sit well with Saul. Saul doesn't like that. He don't like that at all. It makes him angry, and it makes him very, very jealous. All right, so, so he is extremely jealous about this thing. And as you keep reading down in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 9, it says that, And Saul eyed David from that day on. Now, I think we can all deduce what that means. All right, he's, he's got it out for David. He doesn't like David anymore. He's, he wants him eradicated. So long story short, from that point on, Saul is basically setting out to kill David in whatever way he can. It, he's just trying to get rid of David. He doesn't want him there. He tries to throw a spear at him a couple times and says, I want to pin him to the wall. And this is while David is like serving the king. I mean, he's there like playing instruments for him and soothing him and helping him out. And Saul goes crazy, grabs a spear and tries to kill him. David evades him a couple different times there. Then later on, he uses uh, one of his own daughters to try to elude David into going and fighting the Philistines and doing all this kind of stuff so that they could kill him. So he's putting him in these different situations. Then he uses his own son. Saul uses his own son, Jonathan, who is like David's best friend. I mean, they are like close beyond close can be. And he uses Jonathan and some of his men. He says, go kill David. So he's using all these different things to just get rid of David altogether, all because he's jealous all because of this jealousy that has rooted up in his heart. So all this irrational thinking, and if you read the story, it really is like, it's like, man, this dude is crazy. Like he has gone off the deep end. And it's all because he is jealous of this young man, David. So I say that little side note here, beware of Facebook. Just beware of Facebook. Because, man, you can look in that and, and jealousy will rise up. Just beware. I just, that's a side note. That's free of charge. <laughs> so that brings us to chapter 24. And Saul now has heard where David is. He's heard where David is, so he's gathered 3,000, 3,000 of his own soldiers. And these aren't just like Gomer Powell, USMC, private first class dudes, all right? These are legit soldiers like Special Forces, Navy SEALs, whatever, like the highest of the high elite soldiers there are. That's who these guys are, 3,000 of them, to go get David, one of his own commanders, and his 600 men. David's got 600 at this time. So he's sending them out to go get David. They finally get to the area where David is, and Saul says, well, boys, I don't know about y'all, but I got to go to the bathroom. And he says, this has been a long ride. I got to stop. So he goes into this cave, 
and he is taking care of business, and he doesn't realize it, but David and his men are in that same cave. So he's there. So Saul is in this cave doing what he needs to do, but little does he know they're in there too, and he's clueless to it. Saul has no idea. He doesn't know they're in there or anything. So David, David's men see this, and they see it as, man, this is an opportunity. This is like God is just laying this out before you, man. You've got to take advantage of this situation here. So they encourage David. They're encouraging David to go kill him, to go take Saul out and use this opportunity that he has before him. Is there a more vulnerable or defenseless position that Saul could have been in? There, he is helpless. He's defenseless. He has nothing. He, he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know anything. He is completely vulnerable. He's helpless in this situation. An easy, easy target. And he deserves it. We'll get into that in a minute. But the question is, what is David going to do? What does David do? How is he going to respond in this situation? How would you respond if you were David? If you place yourself in David's shoes in this situation, what would you do? Saul's been trying to kill you, chasing after you for no reason, no good reason whatsoever. What would you do in that situation? Now, I hope that we don't actively have someone pursuing us to try to kill us or anything like that, but I think we can relate to David in some ways, okay, in, in his situation. Maybe you've been bullied at school or something like that. Maybe you've been, have somebody in your school that's just bullying you or somebody in the neighborhood. Maybe there's somebody in your life who's trying to set you up to fail somehow. You just know it. Like, you know they're against me. They're, they're trying to, to set me up to fail. Maybe they're starting rumors about you or something like that to make you look bad. Um, maybe you have a friend, someone you know and trust, but they've betrayed that trust. And now they're, they're there doing things to hurt you or hurt your feelings or do whatever. Maybe you got a family member who has said or done something that makes you look bad and dis- discredits you in front of the rest of the family. And maybe you're not even sure how all of it started. But all of a sudden, you've got an opportunity. They're in a vulnerable position. Something has happened somehow. You've got an opportunity to get back at them. And there's nothing they can do about it. And they don't see it coming. They're in a vulnerable position, and you have the power and the opportunity to do something about all the stuff they've been doing to you. You find yourself in a position to get back at that bully, to set somebody else up to fail or start spreading something about them, something derogatory somehow that might discredit them somehow. You can get back at that friend that hurt you for whatever reason. What would you do in that situation? What are you doing? if that's a situation you're in currently. How would you react? Are you prepared to act appropriately? And what exactly is the appropriate reaction? What should we do in that situation? Well, let's keep reading, and we'll see what David did and see what we can learn from the situation that he finds himself in. So starting in the second part of verse, uh, verse 4, chapter 24 there. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him 
because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand out against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and, they, and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Now, real quick, just to point something out here. Um, the word Lord is thrown around a lot in that verse. In those verses, I want to make sure that we understand what we're, what we're looking at there. When Saul says, or when David says that the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, anytime you see capital L-O-R-D in scriptures, that is referring to the proper name of God, the Hebrew name of God. That's Yahweh. That is referring to God himself. Little L-O-R-D, that's just referring to somebody that's in authority over an individual. You see that over and over again. People will call all different kinds of people, my Lord. Um, so just to, to make that reference, make that point for you. So what did David do here? What did David do in this situation? Well, evidently he's a ninja too, all right? Because he sneaks up in this cave and he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. So, and, and Saul is completely unaware that this has happened. I mean, he has no clue that that has, that has gone on. So that, to me, is just showing some serious, serious skill that, that David has in his warrior techniques. And like I say, I think he's a ninja. But what I really want to point out is what David didn't do. It's not so much what he did, it's what he did not do. Because he did not kill Saul. And he easily could have. He had him right there in his grasp, and he could have taken him out. And this whole situation would have been done. But he doesn't. He doesn't do that. Verse 7 says that he, Saul, rose up and left the cave and went on his way. No harm. No harm to him at all. So why was Saul able to leave that cave that day? Because David, even though he had been wronged so many times by Saul on so many different occasions, in so many different ways, instead of taking out his own vengeance on his enemy, instead of taking advantage of the power and the opportunity that was presented to him in that cave, David showed mercy. He showed mercy, and he left the vengeance to the Lord. He left the vengeance to the Lord. He said, it is not my place to do this thing. This is God's anointed man. He recognized who Saul was as God's man at that moment. Now, there's a whole lot of backstory to that too. David's been anointed king, Saul's still the king, all that kind of stuff. But nonetheless, David recognized who he was dealing with and he was going to let the Lord handle the vengeance. And David even tells Saul as much. He even comes out and tells him that this is what has happened. Look at verses 11 and 12, because he comes out of the cave. Saul leaves the cave. David comes out after him, and he says, Saul. And so he presents himself to him. And later on in the, in the verses there, in verses 11 and 12, David says, See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. 
Why would David show that kind of mercy to Saul? Why would he do that? Would we do that? And I think the first thing we have to do is we have to define mercy. We have to understand what mercy is. And I'm going to just say this as simply as I know how. There are so many different definitions for mercy, it's, it's unbelievable. But simply stated, just to put it as simply as possible, mercy means not getting what you deserve in a negative sense. Like if you deserve punishment, if you deserve some consequence that happens because of sin or some decision you've made or whatever, and you don't get that, that is mercy. So it's not getting a punishment for doing something wrong. Now Saul certainly deserved punishment in some way, shape, or form. All right, He, he deserved it because of the way he was treating David and all that he was trying to do to David. That is a fact. You cannot read that story and not say, man, he deserved whatever he had coming to him. I mean, because he did. But David, and David also had every right to harm him, to exact some of that punishment and some of that justice for himself. But David saw Saul for who he was. He saw that man for who he was, the king who had, been, who had been put in place by God. And even though David had been anointed as the new king that was going to reign over Israel, until God removed Saul, it wasn't David's place to remove Saul. He, he understood that. He saw him for who he was. And that's why David responded the way he did after he cut that piece of Saul's robe off. Because he felt it. He was convicted by that thing. When in verse 6... He says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing against my Lord or to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to put my hand out against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. David knew that even him going and cutting part of his robe off was arrogant. That was an arrogant act on his behalf or on his part, even that. And he repented of that. So he knew that, that was a, an, an act against Saul. And it was an example of him even raising his hand against God's anointed king at the time. So, the point there is, showing mercy is, first of all, a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. It is, um, it indicates how you see others. Do you see others as better than yourself, or are they less than you? Do you have authority over them? Whatever those kind of things are. True mercy is not something that can be faked. Legit, real, true mercy and forgiveness it's not something you can put on airs about. It's either genuine or it's not, and, and people know it. You can't just give it lip service. You can't see yourself as better than anyone else and really be merciful. And that's what makes it so difficult for us to show mercy because our hearts are wicked. Our hearts are wicked and sinful, and we are very self-centered. Some of us more than others. Some of us struggle with that a little more than others, but it's a fact that it's there. We all suffer from that. We have wicked, sinful hearts. And it is really, really hard at times to see others as better than ourselves. Even though we read it over and over in the scriptures that we should do that. We should love others more than ourselves. But the fact that our heart is wicked is, is spelled out in scripture as well. Jeremiah 17, 9. The prophet Jeremiah writes this. He says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We can't even understand our own hearts sometimes. God understands it. But our hearts are so bad 
that we don't even understand them. So if we have this Disney princess mentality, follow your heart, right? That's going to lead you down a bad path, potentially. So we got to be careful with that because there's all sort of trouble that can come from following our heart because our heart will lie to us. It is deceitful. It is very, very deceitful. And we will feel like we are completely justified in doing whatever we do. And we'll justify it ourselves that way. It, it feels like what I should do. You know, I feel like this is what I should do. And we'll do that. We'll make those decisions based on that. And it's easy for us to harbor hatred towards someone. And we'll have that desire to get revenge or get back at them. And here's why I say that. And, I, and there's a reason why I say this is true. And I think we'll all agree have you ever had one of those things we mentioned earlier happen to you? Being bullied, rumors being spread about you, had a friend betray your trust, any of those kind of things. I mean, you can come up with your own in your head that somebody offended you somehow. Have you ever had one of those things, and even if you didn't actually retaliate against them, you imagined it? Right? You'd have conversations in your head about it. You'd, you'd fantasize about, man, what I would do if I could just get in this situation, if I can get them in this place right here, oh my goodness, here's how that conversation would go. And you play it out. You'll have the conversation. They'll say this and then I'll say this. That's what we do. We do it. We do it all the time. We will fantasize about it. We will daydream about what we would do or say to somebody given the right situation to get that revenge. And in those fantasies, in those daydreams, we always win, right? We always get the revenge every time. But how often do we fantasize about being merciful? How often do we daydream about, man, they offended me, but this is what I would do if I could make this relationship reconciled. If I could make this relationship right, this is how I would play that out. We don't tend to think that way. Why? Because our hearts are wicked and sinful and deceitful. It's just not, not often, at least, do we ever play those scenarios out in our minds that end with us forgiving someone or being reconciled instead of us standing over them in spiteful victory, right? It just, it just doesn't work that way. And that's why our hearts need to be constantly watched over and surrendered to the truth of the gospel. If we can keep our heart right in that, then the mercy comes a lot easier. The forgiveness comes a lot easier. We like to think of ourselves as pretty good people, at least compared to most other people we know, right? I know that's the case for me anyway. And I'm not trying to be a downer here. I'm just trying to be as real as I possibly can but do you realize how sinful you really are? Do we really grasp how rotten and despicable that we are? In big things, in little things, just in life, we wake up in the morning and just the sin is there. It's like ever, ever before us. Do we understand that we're really not that good, even on our good days? And do we realize this? Do we realize how much mercy has been shown to us 
do you realize how much mercy has been shown to you? Now, this book of the Bible don't get quoted very much, but Lamentations says this. <laughs> Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 says this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, Lord, that your mercies never come to an end. Because we need them over and over and over and over and over again. We need it all the time because that's how sinful we are. Yes, Jesus died on the cross. He paid the penalty for sin, but that does not eradicate us from that sin, and we still have to have God's mercy poured out on us every day, even if we've placed our faith and our trust in Christ. Even this morning, and I know this, all right, because I, I'm a family man, got a wife, kids. I know how it goes. Even this morning, trying to get up and go to church, you think, man, everything would be great. Not usually. Not usually. There's an argument between a, the kids or something. There's hairs being pulled and somebody's freaking out and parents are being disrespected somehow and parents are flying off the handle getting angry. And if it didn't happen at home, it most likely happened in the car on the way here. Maybe even in the parking lot. But then you get all buttoned up and everything's good when you come in the door. Right? That's how that normally plays out. But the point is this. The point is this. We have to have a heart change. We have to have a heart change no matter who we are, no matter where we are. We have to have a heart change in order to even come close to being merciful toward others like we should be. It has to happen. We cannot do it on our own. We cannot change our own heart. The heart has to be changed. And the only way to get that heart change is to have it changed by a holy, righteous, loving, good, gracious, amazing Father. Okay? That's the only way that that can happen, completely surrendering ourselves to Him by embracing the message of the gospel. I mentioned it just a minute ago. We're all sinners, every one of us, all right? Deserving of the full and complete wrath of God. But God took that wrath and he poured it out on his son in the greatest act of mercy ever toward us so that we don't have to pay that penalty because we can't. We could die over and over and over and over and over again and never pay that penalty because we just can't be good enough. He placed that wrath on his own son on our behalf that through his death, burial, and resurrection that we can then have a heart change. Granted, it's imperfect. It's not going to work right all the time because we live in a sinful, depraved, fallen world, but it at least gets the process started, right? And all we have to do is trust in it, believe in it. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4 says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, dead in our trespasses, spiritually dead, helpless, cannot do anything for ourselves on our own in any way, shape, or form. Even when we're in that state, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. All we have to do is receive this gift. 
We just open our heart and receive this gift in. That's all we have to do. He does the rest. He then changes our heart through what Christ has done, through repenting of our sins, surrendering ourselves to him, receiving the mercy that he so richly provides for us. And just like those mercies are new every morning, we have to surrender ourselves to him over and over again. The minute we stop doing that, that's when we start falling into our old self. And Paul would tell us, man, you're a new man. You're a new woman. You do not have to do that anymore. We have to choose in that regard to continue on. So he provides this mercy for us. He provides this grace for us. He provides all that we need to have our heart changed because he is a merciful and good and gracious God. Billy Graham. I got to give a Billy Graham quote. I mean, it's just, we just got to do that. Billy Graham said this, the wonderful news is that our Lord is a God of mercy and he responds to repentance. He responds to repentance. He's merciful, but he responds to repentance as well. He's done the work for us. His own display of absurd mercy through the cross of Christ, through the resurrection after his death, all we have to do is repent and live in it. And then as we grow in our faith, as we grow in our faith and as our hearts are changed and we live in this gospel message, as we do that, that's the only way that we're going to be able to see others better than ourselves and be able to display this mercy, this absurd mercy that God would have us display as well. And it will surely have an effect on other people. It will definitely have an effect on other people. You go from being resentful and spiteful and vengeful to being merciful, people are going to notice. People are going to notice. And here's why I say that. Let's look at the rest of uh, or chapters, chapter 24, 1 Samuel, um, and how Saul in this particular situation was affected by David's mercy. So David's finished talking, and now, now Saul responds to him in verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? This is confounding to, to Saul. He doesn't even understand it. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Saul is clearly affected by this mercy that David has shown to him. He is very clearly affected by it, by this absurd act of mercy. And it shows up in several ways in, in his reaction. Number, the first one, the first way is he's clearly broken. He's clearly a broken man as he lifts up his voice and weeps. And then as he acknowledges his own wrongdoing in this situation. So he sees what he has done. He's, he's been presented with this act of mercy and it has affected him. And both of those things, his brokenness and his uh, repentance, his acknowledgement of his wrongdoing, are signs of a broken spirit. And it's oftentimes the same result that we have when we're confronted with our sin. Should be. When we're confronted with our sin, when God reveals us and convicts us of our sin, we should respond in brokenness and repentance as well. 
So he's showing this mercy to him. And he responds in repentance. Abraham Lincoln said this about, about mercy. He said, I've always found that mercy bears richer fruits than strict justice. I think we see that in this passage right here. Brokenness and repentance that come from an understanding, from understanding the mercy that has been shown to us and is by far, are by far richer fruits than the arrogance and conceit that come from thinking that we are more righteous than we actually are. The second thing we see in, in Saul here is that he acknowledges the absurdity of this mercy that David has shown to him and how it defied military logic. He's like, it just does, doesn't make sense. It, it doesn't make common sense. These are military men in a war with each other. All right? they, are, they are at war with one another. Even though they're in the same country and they're fighting on the same side and all that, but they have this war going on between them. And Saul's like, this makes no sense. What, what military man captures his enemy, has his enemy in his sights, and lets him go. He's like, that doesn't happen. It, it confounds him. He, he doesn't understand that. It would be absurd to do such a thing, and yet that's exactly what David did. And then the third thing we see is that because of this mercy that David showed to Saul, Saul now pronounced a blessing on David. Instead of hunting him down, trying to kill him, he now pronounces a blessing on him. His demeanor toward David changed in that moment. And he went from hunting and wanting to kill David to praying for God's blessing on him because of his acts of mercy toward the king that day. So we never know. We never, ever know how our displays of mercy are going to affect somebody. And you might have to do it over and over and over and over again. Don't think. Don't, don't leave here today thinking that this is the only time David and Saul had this confrontation. It happened again. It happened again just a few chapters later. Saul trying to kill him. David, like a ninja, sneaks up to him one night. He's sleeping, takes his spear, takes his water, goes off, and then he calls him back and says, Hey, man, I could have killed you again, but I didn't. Saul responds the exact same way again. But they still, they still had this. My point is, our mercy is not going to be just a one-time event. You may have to display it over and over again. Remember, his mercies are new every morning. God has to give us mercy and show us mercy every single day, and he never gets tired of it. Never gets tired of it. We will grow weary. We're going to grow weary, and it's going to be hard to show that mercy sometimes, but that's where we have to stay surrendered to the gospel. We have to stay under that umbrella of Jesus all the time, and we can do that as well. So we may be required to show mercy over and over and over again. And if so, then we should be willing to show mercy over and over again. One last quote here from Rick Warren, a pastor out in California. He says this, God's mercy to us is the motivation for showing mercy to others. Remember, you will never be asked to forgive someone else more than God has forgiven you. You will never be asked to forgive someone else more than God has forgiven you. Our sin against God, the slightest little thing, the littlest white lie is a paramount sin against the holy God. My dad used to say this. He would say the ground is level at the cross. There's nobody any better than the next. 
There's nobody any higher than the next. Billy Graham, who just died, is no different than Adolf Hitler when it comes to that place, okay, and, and as far as sinfulness goes. We put levels on it. We see this different hierarchy. Yes, it doesn't matter. We are all the same in that regard, and God will never ask us to forgive someone more than he has already forgiven us. So the mercy of God on us is certainly an absurd mercy. So let's be a people, let's be a church that shows that same kind of absurd mercy to others. And it's going to take all of us to do that together. Not any one of us can do it by ourselves. We need, we need each other. We need to be praying for one another to do that. So let's pray right now, and the praise team will come and lead us this morning. Lord God, we are so, so grateful, so thankful for your tremendous, beautiful, amazing mercy that you show to us, Lord. And Lord, we confess and we beg your forgiveness, and Lord, we repent of the fact that we don't always extend that same mercy to others. Father, we pray for your help. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Lord, if, if we are your children, God, put a desire in us to, to show mercy and to show your glory through that mercy. Lord, if anyone is in here today and they don't know you and they don't understand this mercy, and they're like, man, I don't even want to think about giving mercy to somebody. Lord, I pray that you would open their heart to the mercy that they have been shown. God, I pray that they would repent. I pray that they would turn to you in faith and trust you with their lives. And Lord, we know that salvation is from you, and we pray that you would work and you would do as only you can. Lord, we pray that your spirit would just move through this place right now. Convict hearts. Tell us where we need to change, what we need to do, where we need to repent, where we need to confess. Lord, if we've got a brother or a sister in here that we've been harboring some sort of anger towards or some sort of hatred towards or, or any kind of issue like that, Lord, I pray that you would lay it on our hearts to get that reconciled, to get that right, to show mercy to one another, Lord. We've got to start here and then let it go out from here, Lord. So we ask that you do that. We ask that you work in and through us for your name and for your name alone, not for the name of Anthem, not for any of our names individually. Because, Lord, we're nothing. We are your people. We are your vessels. We are your creation. We want to point to you and to the tremendous and absurd mercy that you show to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you do, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.